Hello and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. I'm your host Larissa and there will be a spot of travel in this episode because we'll be talking about another Polish city with a strong Ukrainian history. But first we'll get to the introductions. Uh, I may swear in this episode so if you don't like it don't listen and if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts please leave a review or just rate it. Um, You can also find us on a number of streaming sites including but not limited to Spotify, Google Podcast Breaker, and of course the website wanderingtheedge.net, where you could check out uh, any of the previous episodes and of course the sources. Um, and what I would love to take you on a tour of Ukraine, I can't because Russia has decided that instead of being part of the human world, it's uh, plunged itself back to the medieval world where might equaled right. And now we, once again, stand between Russian imperialism and civilization. So no tourism information to Ukraine for a while. But if that changes, you will be the first people I will tell or scream it at out the top of my lungs to. But for now, here's some tourist information for Yaroslav, Poland. So Yaroslav is uh, an old ancient town established in 1031 by Kivian Rus uh, Yaroslav the Wise. Thus, he literally named the town after himself. It then passed hands through all the major political players because it was an important trade route linking Hungary, Poland, and what is now Ukraine. In 1579, a Jesuit college was established there, and it's still around and kicking. It is also the oldest Jesuit college in Poland. And now it has been a part of Poland for a very long time, but it is also very, very close to the Ukrainian border. And at the center of this town is the old town square, because all European towns and cities have one of these. And located at Fordinek Square, there is the Yaroslav Museum, located at the old tenement building of Orsetis. This building was built in the late 1500 by Wilhelm Orsetti, an Italian merchant. From, fi- from 1945, it became a museum and now has collections that include a gothic sculpture of the Madonna and Child, uh, coffin portraits, bourgeois interiors, handcrafts, and contemporary artist collections. But the Orsetti house itself is just really nice to look at, and so if you, if you don't want to actually spend the day inside, I'm sure you could probably find a nice cafe in the town square and look at it for a while if you want. But... If you would like to, you can also go underneath the Orsetti house and check out this underground tourist passage. It is 186 meters long and 6 meters deep and goes under the market square. These were the old wine cellars that now display 11 rooms on ceramics, the 16th and 17th century bourgeois kitchen, hunting, paleontology, archaeology, and a reconstruction of the um, Yaroslav Old Town Square. It also has a sister museum in the Ushrod Castle in Ushrod, Ukraine. And last, we'll go visit the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church of Transfiguration of Our Lord, located at 3 Tserkovna Street. This church was actually built on the old foundations of the former Ostrovsky uh, Castle. So the Ostrovskys were an old Ukrainian royalty among the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. 
Construction began in 1717, and it was consecrated only in 1747. It was then rebuilt in the early 20th century. It houses the Mother of God icon in the Chodegetria design. I do not know what that means. Which was given papal approval in 1996. Anyways, it's a nice little church. Go check it out if you can. But now, let's take a dive into what is considered some pretty controversial history. One that began with bloodshed, but ended, well, with more bloodshed. But also a sort of union of sorts. And this time it's about two armies rather than two men. So I'm going to begin this section focusing on the history of the Polish Home Army because, well, it's a bit more simpler than that of the Ukrainian insurgent army. So Poland fell in September 1939 as Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany invaded. There were Polish resistance movements that began shortly after the collapse of the Polish, home, uh, Polish army, and it took them about two years to bring them all together and bring about the Polish Home Army. The AK, or Armia Krajowa in Polish, was loyal to the Polish government in ex exile in London, and basically did everything and anything to create a national resistance organi organization against the Germans. Its membership grew to about half a million, but no one really knows since record-keeping for a secret organization wasn't exactly a good idea. They were also active throughout the former Second Polish Republic, and especially active in the Polish self-defense centers in Volynia, when the Poles began, uh, became targets of long-time hatreds by the Ukrainians, and several massacres occurred there. But we'll get to that later. Now, with the invasion of the Soviet Union by Germany, there was a weirdly uneasy truce between the Poles and the Soviets. They were technically on the same side, but well, the Soviet Union saw them as an obstacle to communist control in Poland, and so ordered their red partisans to attack the home army, sometimes even more so than against the Germans, you know, their actual enemies. That's when it got even more complicated, because there were even some home army units from the western borderlands like in Vilnius who accepted German weapons against their fight against the Soviet partisans. It wasn't like ideological cooperation, but rather the idea of enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of stuff. Anyway, 1944 though, a disquiet truce with the Soviets was established. I think Poland's government and exile were like even forced to shut up about their complaints about Soviet Russia by Churchill. Uh, but I might be remembering wrong, but I'm fairly sure that's what happened. Anyway, the Polish-Soviet pseudo-alliance was the turning point of Operation Tempest in early 1944. Now, Operation Tempest was like a joint Soviet home army military operation thing. It was basically designed as a precursor to Soviet advances westward. For example, the Poles would begin an armed uprising against the Germans in cities that were being sort of liberated by the Soviets. Again, it's not really liberation when you just enslave the people that you're liberating all over again, now is it? Now, the Lviv Uprising on July 23rd, 1944 is an example of this. The Soviets captured that city of Lviv in only four days. The Warsaw Uprising was an example of this also, but it went really, really bad for the Poles. Why? 
it's because you never trust the Russians. I guess the Poles forgot about that one ribbit rule for life. The Warsaw Uprising was just, I don't even have a good word for it. It's, it's more than just a betrayal. But it was, it was such a brutal betrayal of the Soviets. The Poles ordered an uprising to start on August the 1st, 1944, and they did for two months. About 16,000 Home Army members were killed along with another 200,000 civilians, and about 80% of Warsaw was destroyed. The, Sto- the Soviets stood along the other side of the Stula River and ignored the Polish radio request for help. Stalin purposely refused any aid from the Western Allies. The Germans managed to suppress this uprising, and then the Soviets began their advance westward again. Operation Tempest was just a guise. Stalin wanted to use the Poles as a way to ensure that independent Poland would never be resurrected, and so use the Home Army to sacrifice themselves. He then ordered his NKVD to arrest, imprison, or execute any Home Army soldiers they could lay their hands on. Between 1944 and 1956, about 2 million people were arrested and 6 million were classified as criminal elements. Now, the Ukrainian insurgent army had a more complicated beginning. And if I went through all of it in detail, it would literally be a PhD thesis. So I'm going to really, really simplify it for you. So while technically the Ukrainian insurgent army's official date of creation is October 14th, 1942, there's not an actual start date for the UPA. It came about by several factors, one of them the Second World War breaking out. Now, in order to understand the UPA, one also has to discuss the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, and Russia's big back boogeyman for the last 80 years or so. So, the OUN began in 1929 under the leadership of Yevhen Konovalets, who was a former siege rifleman and fought for Ukrainian independence after the First World War. He was imprisoned, pissed off about the fall of Ukraine, and began the OUN to act as an independent movement in Poland. Technically, the OUN used terrorist actions against the Polish state in the interwar period, but was also a secret organization that used three- and five-person cells and fake names. Once the Soviet Union took over the area, the OUN membership actually expanded, and it became the only political organization for Ukrainians as everyone else was shot or imprisoned by the Soviets. Now, with Konovalis's assassination by the Soviet NKVD agent in 1938, the leadership of the OUN was split between the older generation, led by Andriy Melnik, who was also a veteran of the Ukrainian independence movement of the post-First World War years, and now famous and infamous Stepan Bandera, who led the younger generation of OUN members who basically wanted Ukrainian independence by any and all means, including an armed insurrection, without any help of any state. Obviously, as all good Ukrainian organizations, the OUN Bandera branch, or OUNB, loved memos and conventions and congresses to discuss stuff. And in August 1941, for example, they put out a memo to create a Ukrainian army. And then at their first conference in October 1941, They called for taking their whole organizational structure underground because, well, the Germans wanted to kill them all by this point, seeing that the Ukrainians called for independence in June of the same year, and Bandera and Yaroslav Stetsko, the president of this newly independent Ukraine, 
were arrested and sent to the Sachsenhausen concentration camp, mainly because they refused to denounce that independent statement. And so, um, at their second Congress in April of 1942, they began preparing for Ukrainian army and stated that the Soviets were their primary enemy, but, well, the Germans weren't exactly great either. In December, at a military conference of the OONB, see, I told you they really liked their conferences, they agreed to expand their support among the population. Now, because the OON worked in small cells among like-minded and local populations, it was sort of easy for an armed military wing of the OONB to be formed. During the OON Third Conference in February of 1943, the Germans officially made it on the OONB's enemy list. And it was in March of 1943 that the OONB issued their orders for all of their members who joined the Ukrainian Auxiliary Police to get training and weapons to desert and join the UPA. Now, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, or UPA, was also actually formed in Volynia in December 1941, but not the one that became so widespread when the OONB was in charge. This UPA was first organized by Taras Borovets in December of 1941, after he began organizing a Ukrainian underground in the region, mainly to protect the local population against rampant anarchy in the Germans and Soviet partisans. His UPA, along with the military units of the Oun under Melnik's leadership and the OUNB units sort of united after a short but brutal civil war and were consolidated in the summer of 1943 under the OONB's UPA. It was also this time of brutal civil organizational war that the Ukrainians decided to take their anger out at their Polish neighbors who frankly didn't exactly treat the Ukrainians great under the Second Polish Republic. And so in the spring and summer of 1943, there was a brutal massacre of Polish civilians in Volynia and Holichna. But there was also counter-offensives against Ukrainian civilians by Polish Home Army members. It was a fucking tit-for-tat that was stupid on both sides. Both Poles and Ukrainians created self-defense groups against each other, who would then also be incorporated into the Home Army and into the UPA. It was, again, a stupid move on the Ukrainian side. Now, how many people were in the UPA? Well, it's hard to say, since everyone used nom de gaz or pseudonyms, but it, it's estimated to be around 200,000 people, and they were active until 1947, when some remaining underground, um, but some underground remained underground well into the 1960s and 80s. They were organized into districts, east, um, west, north, and south, and went on numerous propaganda raids deep into eastern Ukrainian territories, along with Belarus and Czechoslovakia. Their slogan of Slava Ukraini, Heroim Slava, is now Ukraine's military greeting because it means glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. And their anthem is now the anthem of the Ukrainian armed forces. Anyway, it was a serious threat to the Soviet Union because, you know, of the whole Ukrainian independence thing. Basically, it felt that anyone who stood in the way of Ukrainian independence was their enemy. And this including the Poles who wanted the Second Polish Republic back to its old borders the Germans, who basically saw Ukrainians as slaves, and the Soviet Union because, well, need I explain more on how fucking terrible they were? Just literally listen to any of the other episode about the Russians, and it's basically self-evident. Now, 
Because the UPAL was an existential threat to the Soviet Union because A, it was an efficient and active resistance movement, B, had the population support who would give it information, food, and shelter, and C, showed that Ukrainians weren't exactly super happy to be under the Soviets, seeing as they were huge douchebags. And in response to this, the Soviets decided to deport the local population rather than their take the fight to the UPA. Between 1944-1952, the Soviets deported 182,543 people from Western Ukraine. But again, these are Soviet sources, so they sort of suck, and the actual number is probably closer to half a million. These were literally entire villages that were suspected of aiding the UPA, or they had family members in the army. The Soviets, much like their modern Russian equivalents, used torture and rape in order to break those UPA members they did capture. Which, side note, for all those stupid historians that use Soviet archives to prove whatever half-assed theory they have about the UPA, where the fuck do you think these archives come from? These testimonies of UPA soldiers who were broken through brutal torture and forced to sign whatever was put in front of them can't really be treated as, you know, full-blown truth. If you see that a three-page testimony took three to five days to sign, or worse, when there's fucking, like, actual blood on the paper, it probably wasn't written freely. Anyway, basically, the entirety of Western Ukraine was labeled as nationalist, a label that is still used by the Russians today. And a lot were sent to the Gulag, where they also caused havoc and mayhem. Now, the UPA fought against this with assassinating Soviet officials, but also had active operations against the KGB. But the brutal techniques of clearing Western Ukraine of the UPA worked, and slowly they were arrested, shot, or exiled. But 1947 was basically the final push to end the UPA, and it culminated with Akcja Visa, or Operation Vistula, which is what the communist Polish called their forced deportation of Ukrainians from eastern Poland. And, and I will quote from them, quote, the final solution to the Ukrainian problem, end quote. And so in 1947, they rounded up all those Ukrainians living in their ancestral homes of the Subcarpathian regions in Halichina, which were now within Polish borders, and shipped them north and west, placed them among a majority of Poles, they weren't actually allowed to live near each other, and forced to assimilate. This also took away the Upa's support in those territories, who like those Ukrainians in Western Ukraine, helped the UPA with information, food, and protection. The UPA were also a huge pain in the ass for the communist Poland. They supposedly assassinated a Polish communist deputy defense minister, General Karol Szwiczewski, in 1947. Honestly, though, he was a huge jackass, and his old men didn't really particularly like him. It was in Poland that this union of Polish and Ukrainian undergrounds, however, actually took place. Now, uh, in 1945, when the Home Army was disbanded, some soldiers said, fuck that, and continued to fight. This was the Freedom and Independence Organization, or WIN, in Polish. General Jan Zepetsky was their leader, and he sent Henryk uh, Jozewski, 
a pre-war administrator of the Second Polish Republic who had pretty good relations with the Ukrainians, to improve relations with the UPA. Wynne was the successor of the military organization, but Zapetsky didn't want too many of his people to die at the hands of the Soviets and so wanted strategic operations conclude, uh, conducted. He would be arrested by the Polish secret police on November 5, 1945, and this was followed by a wave of arrests, and by 1946, the Polish communists were basically in charge of everything in Poland. Now, when wasn't the only Polish underground movement in post-war Poland that the UPA established contacts with? They also made contacts with NSZ, so National Armed Forces, a Polish underground army in western Poland. The Ukrainian insurgents went as far as Wroclaw or Breslau and established liaison with WRN, or Liberty, Equality, Independence, another Polish underground organization. Whilst establishing contacts with the Polish underground, they concluded agreements of mutual support and assistance, and this was written by a certain I. Dmitriev in his work Sviato Pokrove Upa 1942-1946. Or 1962, wow, I don't know where I'm getting these the numbers from. Anyway, for the OON, these contacts were important because they wanted to organize a global anti-communist union, and cooperation with Poland was key. This didn't really happen that way, but it was an important step for the Ukrainians and the Poles. Another reason they, why their agreement with Wynne was important was it firstly decreased the attacks of both armies against civilians, but also because they actually had joint operations. Now, as early as 1944, there was some talk between the Poles and the Ukrainians, and there was even a protocol of, under, to, of understanding and cooperation set up in February 1944. The most important points were that the two sides recognized the need for a peaceful resolution of Polish-Ukrainian problems and based their goal on the principle of national self-determination set forth in the Atlantic Charter. Ha, NATO. It's a bitch. Uh, and if you don't know what I mean, just look up the Atlantic Charter. Both sides agree that the ex existence of the two independent countries is to the benefit of both nations and that this is the only guarantee for a continuing existence and lasting coexistence of the two nations. Both sides confirm that they face common enemies in their battle for national ideals and for independence, and both sides concur that tension and acts of mutual aggression characterize current Polish-Ukrainian relations, mm -hmm. that this situation is detrimental to both sides, and that all efforts must be turned to eliminate all signs of hostilities. I mean, it's a great ideal, not so great in reality. Anyways, during these negotiations, Stepan Bandera wrote to the UPA Supreme Commander Rohan Shuhevich this, quote, We need to make a deal with them. The difficulty will be the same as before, namely the disputed territories. It might make sense to adapt in place of the ethnic principle the formula of free self-determination by presenting the issue in this way. We place the Poles in a situation where it would be difficult to reject the principle, end quote. However, reject they did. The Polish government in London refused to recognize this mutual understanding because of that clause about the right of self-determination of Ukrainians. But local upon Polish units did try to cooperate and sit down with each other, but there was always something in the way. For example, there was supposedly to be a meeting between local Aka and UPA units in um, Lubachiv. The Ukrainian side sent three delegates with an armed uh, guard but were attacked by the Polish secret police and were saved by local UPA units. 
The reason why they were attacked was because some Aka members talked about this meeting among the local population. But in the spring of 1945, a Polish priest contacted the Upa and said the Aka wanted to negotiate because of the brutal winter of Soviet hostilities. The first meeting established areas of control, while during a separate meeting by separate Upa and Aka units in the Lemko region in the village of Selitsky, featured the Ukrainian delegations of Captain Draja and Officer Pilat and the Ukrainian chief of the district Boris, another Plastun, Zanovi, Bis, and Volos. These were all known to guards, by the way. In May 1945, another meeting took place in Ruda, where the Ukrainians said that they would continue their struggle for an independent Ukraine and proposed the formation of a Polish-Ukrainian alliance based on non-aggression pact. By the fall of 1945, the Aka became Win, and they held another meeting in October 1945 in, o- in Horoshanka, where both sides agreed to broaden their cooperation. This general cooperation that was reached lasted well until Win was dissolved. Now, the two would try to coordinate their propaganda efforts into the area of a common front against a mutual enemy and the local units of both armies were ordered to stop repatriating food from the other ethnicities. This propaganda campaign established results, and an UPA report from late 1945 stated this, quote, The propaganda drives in the Polish villages have unequivocally convinced the Polish masses that we are not attacking the civilian Polish population, only the agents and lackeys of the NKVD, end quote. The problem with all of these talks was that it worked on a local level, but they could never establish a lasting union between the Ukrainians and Poles in exile. Back on the local level, though, apart from the propaganda game, there was also a military cooperation. The first of these was on April 6, 1946, when UPA and WIN soldiers conducted a joint attack on a train station in Verkovice. A month later, a meeting took place in Mietke between the Lublin commanders of both groups, Václav Dubrowski, a.k.a. Aja, of the Poles, and Yevhen Stendera, a.k.a. Preva, of the Ukrainians, who actually just passed away last year and was actually a really great man who I had the privilege of interviewing. The meeting was, um, interesting. Here's a description of what was said, quote, our riflemen and those of Wynn started chatting, getting acquainted, and talking about previous clashes when we were all still enemies, end quote. They decided to attack the town of Hrubyeshov to free political prisoners, destroy documents, and to destroy the headquarters of the, com- of the Committee for Resettlement, who were deporting Ukrainians to Soviet Union, along with the Polish secret police headquarters. Here's a description of the town in Volodymyr Vyatrovich's work, The Gordian Knot. Quote, Rubashiv was a typical provincial town in this region. Most buildings were made of wood and only a few in the center of the town were brick construction. The city became an important center for the new government, with the offices of the county security services, the militia, and the Communist Party located there, as well as an NKVD garrison, nearly 220 soldiers, and the headquarters of the Relocation Commission that managed the resettlement of Ukrainians to the Ukrainian SSR. Soldiers of the 5th Infantry Regiment of the Polish Army were stationed near the town, along with the 32nd Command of the Military Border Guard. According to the plan, 
120 UPA soldiers would storm the NKVD premises. The UPA Security Branch Unit would attack the Relocation Commission, and the Wind Soldiers would attack the Security Services, Militia, and Communist Party offices. End quote. The attack was to also feature so-called torpedoes that were created by Hritzrudenko from the German 150mm uh, turbo-reactive cartridges. I Google that if you really want to, you know, see what it looks like because I can't describe it better. The torpedo flew with the piercing roar of a jet, and Rudenko reported this when using it, quote, I shot the first torpedo toward the NKVD barracks, and it went inside. Before launching the torpedo, the building was lit from the inside, and we could see what was going on inside the room. I saw that two Bolsheviks were washing and then dressing. After the explosion, I no longer saw any light, nor any people in the rooms, end quote. The attack began at 11 p.m. on May 27, 1946, and lasted for about 90 minutes. The 300 UPA and 150 wind soldiers destroyed the NKVD, security service, and post office buildings. The militia command post was seized, documents were destroyed, and 25 prisoners were released. The resettlement committee building, however, was heavily fortified, and they fended off the UPA attack. Two high-ranking uh, communist officials were also executed. The local soldiers of the Polish army, who were stationed nearby, didn't really do shit because, well, communists don't really have sympathy in that area of the world. And while the attack was considered a success, even more importantly, it was a political success for the Ukrainians and Poles, and a political loss for the communists. A June 1946 Ukrainian report said this, quote, Good relations have been noted between the Polish underground and ours in several locations. The Poles in many locations asked for delivery of German ammunition. In exchange, they offer Russian weapons or some other goods. The fact of the rapprochement between the Poles and Ukrainian underground, albeit still very fragile and still not indicative of cooperation on a broader scale, has indeed alarmed the Bolshevik occupiers most of all, as we had expected. They have raised the alarm in all of the Polish Bolshevik newspapers and are attempting to break apart the truce with fiercely chauvinistic anti-Ukrainian propaganda. End quote. Now, in the Ukrainian SSR, in the spring of 1946, Lieutenant General Subchenko of the Ministry of State Security basically ordered all his branches to arrest anyone and everyone from the OUN, UPRA, or AKA leadership because, you know, nationalist or something. Unfortunately, this agreement didn't last long, mainly because the Polish government in exile in London opposed signing any agreements with the Ukrainians. Plus, by the end of 1946, the Polish underground was basically non-existent, and the cooperation between the two was no longer possible. Modern Polish-Ukrainian tension basically comes out from this episode of history. And instead of focusing on the fact that the two underground movements should have been more united and in their fight against their common enemy, which was Russia, which unfortunately we finally have managed to do with this current, you know, Ukrainian-Russian war. Frankly, Poland is our number one ally, and I only hope that that unity will move us forward. We have and had had our issues. But both countries and peoples can move forward with examples of these types of joint operations and actions. We need this hope for our future generations to come together in a united front against imperialist Russia. 
Speaking of which, Russia has funneled millions into fomenting this internal Ukrainian-Polish antagonisms and have even assassinated leaders of both peoples in order for us to stop cooperating with each other. But you know what? Fuck them. Because again, what's Russia's biggest fear? A Polish-Ukrainian union directed against Moscow. And only that can finally destroy the prison that is called the Russian Federation. And now because Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, again, we need help. Please donate to any humanitarian aid relief you can. I've also posted on my website some suggestions. Please take up the call and ask your local representatives to help Ukraine in any way they can. Send us NATO. Get us into NATO. Uh, send us weapons. And then we can actually kick out the Russians, like, all together. In, like, one happy-go-lucky group. Please remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WanderEdgeUkraine. Check out our website, wanderingtheedge.net, for source information and other interesting extras. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on all the other streaming sites, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends, and slava Ukraini i heroim slava. Mm-hmm.